So Hi Felicia is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. Um, one of my guilty pleasures is um, Criminal Minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an unsub by the fact that, that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I, I do do that. So I am using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends, folks who are basically in my sphere at first to interview and have some conversations. Because I've always been curious about um, you know, where people come from, what their interests are, and I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about, maybe I know nothing about. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests, and um, please feel free to comment, send questions, um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on Hi Felicia. I'm just going to do a mention because I'm thinking about this now. I have a very dear friend named Sandy Adams. Over the end of last week, she lost her love, John Kilpatrick. And I've been thinking a lot about her. And um, man, that man knew how to wear a hat. He was generous and loving and kind. And he just adored Sandy. And my heart breaks for her, and I'm thinking about her, and I'm thinking about John, and I'm waiting to see how she makes meaning of this and how makes she makes sense of this. I may replay my podcast with her just to let you know what a special human being she is. So if there's a way to send love out to her through the podcast world, I'm going to be doing that right now. So love you, Sandy. Miss you, John. Chris Vasiliadis is a national board-certified health and wellness coach who inspires people to use their well-being as their secret weapon to successfully lead their life. Working both one-on-one and speaking in professional healthcare and corporate settings since founding our business, Priority Wellness, at PriorityWellness.com in 2008, she has helped countless individuals energize their health, avoid burnout, and improve their performance. Choosing to prioritize her wellness after her a multiple sclerosis diagnosis in 2005, Chris has been relapse-free for over 12 years. Hey, congrats. That's awesome. A lover of reading and writing since childhood, her first personal development book is titled Ignition, A Professional Woman's Guide to Energized Burnout, Burnout Proof Living. And um, she'll tell us how to find her book, and um, we'll talk to Chris about being the uh, local and um, a magic little Italian uh, cafe that she introduced me to, and uh, the coaching world and lots of stuff in between. So I hope you enjoy my interview today with Chris Facilitas. Oh. 
This is High Felicia Podcast, and I am your host, Felicia Ryan, and my guest today is Chris Vasiliadis. Why is it like, I don't know why I want to put like extra letters in there. And I know, it's, it's no double letters, it's all... What is your maiden name? Arangio. Arangio. Okay. I, I Got married, game to syllable. Yeah. <laughs> Do people think that you're Greek sometimes? Greek, Jewish, Armenian. Oh, yeah. I could see Armenia. I have friends mm-hmm. who are Armenian. You, you look at her. As they say in the Armenian, she's got really good hair. She's <laughs> got a good head of hair. It's the hair. It's the nose. It's the olive skin. It's kind of... So you're just that, like, lovely mix of Mediterranean cultures. There you go. Have you ever done your um, genetic uh, testing? My mom has, and it's, I think it was, like, 89 or 90% or 95% Italian shocker. Um, So, yeah. I can't remember if there's anything else. I'm wondering if you have, like, because most Greek and Armenian folks end up with, like, Turkish because the Turks were awful and conquered Mm -hmm. everything in that area. I'm wondering if that might be, like, the speck that you have. Yeah, I'll have to ask her again when I I see her. But, yeah, so obviously people think I'm Greek because of my last name. I'm like, nope, just married Greek. I'm 100% Italian. (laughs) So we, I read your bio pr- prior to this, but I was excited that you were agreeing to come on my podcast because I know you through coaching circles mm. and you ju- – is it just wrote a book or it just published a book or what, what's the timing around this book? So it's about – it's almost two months out now. It, can, it released April 30th and today is what, June 24th? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Very nice. Is it self-published or did you have a publisher for it? It is self-published. So the publisher is me. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. So what made you tell me the name of the book? Sure. So the book is titled Ignition and the subtitle is A Professional Women's Guide to Energized Burnout Proof Living. And tell me why you wanted to write this book. So a couple reasons. Writing a book and putting it out there has always been a bucket list thing of mine mm. for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I love to read. I've loved to read ever since I was a child. Um, I like to write. I've kept a journal since I was 15. I write a newsletter for my health coaching practice. Mm-hmm. So I knew I wanted to publish a book, and it was getting to a place of a topic that I felt um, – passionate enough about that I knew I would be living and breathing for a while because I knew it would take a while to write this book. Mm -hmm. And when I made the decision a few years back to um, specialize in helping professional women avoid burnout in my health coaching practice, that was kind of the light bulb for me. I said, okay, this is the topic because I'm really passionate about that Mm -hmm. subject. And And then I went to a writer's conference in May of 2016, which I would say officially kind of kicked it off. And then I started writing the book that summer, end of summer, beginning of fall that year. And then I finished the manuscript in December of 2018 and then spent from then until about March of 2019 working with my graphic designer to get it all looking pretty inside mm-hmm. and out. Um, mm-hmm. I hired an editor that helped me go from proposal to full manuscript. And yeah, with those two people, the book would have been a very different animal. So I'm uh, I'm glad that I made that decision to get those two people on Huge board. Huge undertaking. Congrats. Thank you. Have you found support in our, um, in our coaching circles for for the book and helping you promote it and the rece- reception of what you wrote about? 
Yeah, there's been, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, social media is great, a lot of people, you know, cheering on social media, way to go. And um, there, there might be some opportunities for me to talk about lessons learned with the book through the organizations that you and I are a part of. Mm-hmm. So still kind of exploring that. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the topic of burnout. Mm. Um, so there, some of the questions I might ask are um, clarifying an assumption I might have, but it also may be somewhat from a perspective of folks who don't necessarily know uh, health coaching or coaching, but might be curious about what you're talking about. Mm. So the way that I identify, and please tell me where I'm wrong, uh, the idea of burnout is this idea of how you manage your own internal energies and expectations, and then in terms of what you're outputting. And some of us don't necessarily know how to recognize, like when the, um, if you're thinking of like um a, a meter on a car or mm. an engine light or whatever, like you know, I I personally sometimes have had a hard time figuring out where I'm in red. Like yes. I know when I'm in red, I know when I've like hit the wall, but I don't necessarily know how to get to the build up. So is that yeah. kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, or? it's more if you're feeling um, mentally, physically, uh, psychologically depleted, like you just feel like things are, and, and you feel like you're not engaged, you feel like you're just kind of going through the motions. And and there could be other things like you're not sleeping well, you're more irritable than usual, what have you. I've got a little questionnaire at the beginning of the book that helps you identify whether you're not you're oh, in burnout. Okay. But so those are some of the things in there. But it's just a sense of feeling disengaged, um, on autopilot too much, and just not feeling like your best possible energy. And so what the book does is help you turn that around and kind of write and write the ship, uh, depending on what areas. I, I identify six different uh, essential elements mm-hmm. in turning burnout around. And they folks self-assess themselves in part one of the book and against those different elements. And then based on their self-assessment, if you're strong in one area, great. You don't need to read that chapter. Mm-hmm. And if you if there's an area you need to build up, then that would be one of the chapters that you would read. So part two has all the different uh, has six chapters covering the five different elements. So you pick and choose what you want to read. And it's uh, the information is presented in a combination of women's stories, people I interviewed for the book uh, or and or clients I've had, and also uh, tips, questions to ask yourself, checklists, tables to fill out. So it's presented in, and exercises. So it's presented in a bunch of different ways that you can. So you, as you go through part two, you can either experiment with these different things as you go, or you can kind of note them for, oh, yeah, that's definitely something I want to play with more later. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to make the book as, as flexible as possible in, in terms of how people go through it. Mm-hmm. And then in part three, you create a 90-day action plan based on what you went through in part one and two mm-hmm. of the book. Part one is also some foundational stuff uh, to to have in place before you move forward. Now, is this book um, similar to how you would coach clients? Yeah, I, I realized in writing, I initially wrote the first uh, revision of the book. So there were about five different revisions of the book before we completed the manuscript. And the very first revision, the book was written 
so the reader would read it in a completely linear fashion. Mm -hmm. And with a figure describing all the pieces that was closer to the end of the book. And one of the biggest pieces of feedback I got from my editor on that thing, on that version was, this figure needs to come closer to the front because I didn't see where you were heading. And if that was at the front, I would have a better idea of how, of where you were going and following you. And that turned out to be a really good piece of advice because I, I felt that having it linear didn't accurately reflect how things go in the coaching process because not everyone needs everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I first meet with someone, um, we figure out, number one, what they're looking for for their health and wellness, and then look at, they they complete a well-being questionnaire Mm -hmm. where where we get a sense of, okay, what's working really well? What needs improvement? Mm -hmm. What strengths do you have to bring? And so this book does mimic that. Uh, as much as possible, it, you know, when I'm not getting feedback from the person reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, the, the closest I could come to, okay, not everyone, if you already have some of these pieces, great, take that along with you for mm-hmm. the journey. And then here's some areas, the areas that you rated mm-hmm. yourself lower, and those would be the areas to focus on and build up. There you go, Heather, you can clip that piece and put it where I put her bio. Okay. So is there a part from the book that you'd like to read? Is there anything that's like a, a sure. nice little nugget or sure. something you want to share? Absolutely. I'm going to read this excerpt, which, and let me set the, set this up. So this excerpt that I'm going to read is from a chapter in part two, which is called Practice Presence Driven Focus. And this is actually a story about me. And like I said, there's different stories throughout the book. And there's only two about me in that, this one and one in the introduction. All the other stories are are other women. So, So let me just launch into this. There are other stories by other women, uh, about other women in the book. And, but I thought this one would give you a couple things. It would give you a flavor of one of the chapters. And there's also some tips involved. This chapter is called Practice Presence Driven Focus. And it's a chapter from part two of the book. On an August morning in 2013, my husband Peter had an accident while using a table saw. It was a tool he'd used a million times over the prior 20 years. He was building a shed in our backyard. In fact, he had finished the shed and he was just cutting the PVC trim for the door. While he doesn't know exactly what happened, his left hand either slipped or somehow got caught. The result is he lost two fingers, his ring and middle finger, half his index finger, and two-thirds of his thumb. I wasn't home when this occurred. Luckily, we live in an urban area with houses close together, and several neighbors heard Peter's shouts for help. Someone called 911, another person ran over with a tourniquet, and another person called me. I rushed home to see the ambulance pulling away at the end of our street, and neighbors graciously cleaning up our driveway, asking me, where they could move his tools, offering me a ride to the hospital. At that point, I didn't exactly know what had happened, and neither did my neighbors, only that Peter had experienced an accident with the saw. I nearly passed out as I was taking everything in. Things started spinning, and I was swaying, so I sat down on the ground to compose myself. After sitting for a few minutes and absorbing what I knew, I decided to go inside my home for a bit and lie down. My thinking was, no matter what, this could be a long day emotionally, mentally, and physically, and I needed to do my best to prepare for whatever was ahead for Peter. I didn't lie down for long, maybe 10 to 15 minutes. 
Fortunately, we live in an area where the hospital is a 10 or 15 minute drive from our house. Lying down and gathering my thoughts refocused me and I felt okay to drive on my own. I grabbed a book, water, and some snack bars, expecting to be at the hospital for a while. When I found Peter in the hospital's emergency room, he was sitting up on a gurney and his left hand was bandaged. When he saw me, he said the first thing that entered his head when the accident happened was, Chris is going to kill me. We shared a quick giggle, and then Peter's expression got more serious, and he said soberly, it's really bad. I said, you're in an amazing hospital, and he replied, no, it's really bad. Shortly thereafter, several doctors gathered to discuss his surgery and have assigned the release paperwork. They started going on about what they were trying to save, and I stopped them and asked what we were dealing with. They asked me, oh, you didn't see it? And I said, no, I don't need to see it, but what can you tell me about his hand? They explained that his middle and ring fingers were partially attached, and he had lost parts of his index finger and thumb. The pinky was the only fully intact finger. They weren't sure what could be saved or reattached, but they do their best to save as much as possible. I said I would stick around, and the lead doctor, with a perplexed look on his face, asked, Do you live far from here? I replied, No, I only lived a 10 or 15 minutes drive away. He strongly encouraged me to go home, adding that the surgery could take anywhere from 5 to 10 hours. Peter and I discussed it, made a list of people for me to call, and mutually agreed that I would go home while he was in surgery. Ironically, I was in the middle of taking an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction class, or MBSR class, and the fourth week's class was meeting that night. When I got home after making the necessary calls to family and work, I called my instructor. The call went to her voicemail, and I let her know my husband needed unexpected surgery. I wasn't sure when he would get out, and I didn't want to disrupt the class if I were to get a phone call in the middle of class and or needed to leave mid-class. She called back within an hour and said one word, come. I did, and I ended up getting a call from Peter's surgeon near the end of the class explaining what they were able to do and not do. They reattached the thumb, but Peter would lose all of the ring and middle fingers and half of the index finger. Peter was in recovery and would be in the hospital room in about an hour or two, and it all worked out for me to stay for the entire class that night and go to the hospital immediately afterward. That began a journey of Peter ultimately losing the part of his thumb that had been reattached and the hospital misplacing and then finding his stretched out wedding ring. There was uncertainty about whether and when he would be able to resume his job or what type of work he'd be able to do. At the time, he worked as a dining services director for an assisted living community, so he cooked daily. There was also uncertainty about how much use he would have from what remained of his hand. When he started occupational therapy less than a week after his accident, the therapist removed the surgical dressing to examine his hand. She looked each of us straight in the eyes with the utmost confidence and stated, you will get a lot of use out of this hand. Looking back, I had all kinds of thoughts running through my head. Besides the practical matters listed above, how would Peter mentally respond to what happened to him? Would he get into a funk or depression? What would he need for support overall during this process, and for me, his wife and life partner, and what would that look like? I felt that continuing to attend the MBSR class was the perfect serendipity for me, and I learned five key lessons in presence from that experience. Number one, going toward pain instead of moving away from or ignoring it helps in dealing with the pain. There were several examples of dealing with emotional pain in the early weeks following the accident looking at his hand when they changed the dressing, listening intently to surgeons when they explained the risk factors with his surgery, allowing myself to cry when I learned they could not save his thumb, flowing with the waves of pain while uncomfortable at the time, 
does help us move through it. It can help soften our associated emotions and give us clarity about how to respond. If we ignore or deny those feelings, the pain's sting persists, making it challenging to see a way out. Number two, keep two feet firmly planted on the ground and sit with a dignified posture to stay grounded. I mean this literally. Instead of crossing my legs when seated, putting both feet flat on the ground when someone was explaining something, or while I observed an occupational therapy session, helped me to connect and focus on what was in front of me. Even now, one way I reconnect to this present moment, whether sitting or standing, is being aware of my feet on my shoes or on the ground. Thoughts number three. Thoughts can keep me from my experience. My experience is what is happening right now, not thinking about the past, putting a judgment or a label on what is now happening, or worrying about what might or might not happen in the future. This is a biggie. Recognizing thoughts are just concepts that pop up in your head, not reality. You are not your thoughts. The brain is separate from who you are. Being here and alive is what connects us to others. It keeps us plugged into life's energy. Number four, your breath is an anchor. When you get caught up in a thought or wrapped up in a reaction, refocus on your in-breath and out-breath to re-anchor yourself to the present. The present is where your power lies. There were countless what-ifs in the aftermath of my husband's accident, but I ultimately got to a point where I chuckled or smiled when they came up. Some, some led to actions to take, a question for Peter's human resources rep, a point to make to his occupational therapist. It's then a conscious choice to let it go and refocus on breathing in and out. Number five, and the last point, every breath is a new beginning, inhaling new life, exhaling old stuff, an opportunity for a new start. This is major. Pete's accident forced him into multiple new beginnings. While progress was incremental, it moved in the right direction. The left hand he now had was new to him and his body, and it took a while for his brain to catch up to what is currently there and how to use it optimally. As with habit change, it can take a while for the brain to catch up to integrating and and routinely using a new habit. Repetition while in presence helps to instill adjustments to doing and being. Taking on a new perspective comes into play here too. We both realized Pete could have bled to death if our next door neighbor hadn't heard his calls for help and run over with a tourniquet. We'll take him alive with fewer fingers versus not being here at all. Even though I'm using an accident to illustrate these tenets, you don't need to wait for an accident to put these presence concepts into place. You can start to change your life in a second by applying these principles. You can cultivate awareness to make a new choice in how you respond to life's events. I will add that maintaining a 45-minute-a-day home mindfulness practice, which was the homework dur during the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction class, directly contributed to my cultivating this level of awareness and inner peace during the aftermath of my husband's accident. That's beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to turn myself back up. I had turned myself down while you were reading. Okay. I was going to say, um, how is your husband doing now? Oh, thanks for asking. He's doing great. Um, so that was that's going to be six years ago that that mm -hmm. accident happened. And there is nothing he can't do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing. Uh, he was such a trooper that whole time. He never once said, why did this happen to, happen to me? Mm -hmm. And uh, he just did everything the doctors told him. And yeah, he's doing great. Yeah, you oh, would God never know. Yeah. God yeah. So I know a little bit about your personal story and how you came to coaching, but do you want to talk a little bit about how you found coaching and what sure. sort of in your personal life may have interested you in that? Absolutely. So three years before I started my health coaching practice, 
which is called Priority Wellness, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is a chronic disease of the central nervous system. And that diagnosis led to a whole bunch of lifestyle changes for me personally. Mm -hmm. And as a result, health and wellness became more and more important to me personally, Mm -hmm. so much so that I wanted to help other people basically establish their ultimate level of health and wellness possible for them. So at the time, I was doing marketing consulting, and one of my clients was a career coach, and I had written all the copy for her website. So when that project was done, I looked at her and said, okay, now I need to hire you. And working with her and networking with different people, I uh, reconnected with someone who at the time called herself a wellness coach. And this now would be late 2007, early 2008. Mm -hmm. And... She and I got together. And so at that time, there were no health and wellness coaches around. You didn't hear that term a lot. You heard life coach, career coach, business coach, what have you. So she and I got together for coffee and uh, I explained to her kind of where I was at. And I was trying, I knew I wanted to do something in wellness. I was playing with the term wellness advocate or wellness consultant. And I said, I'm intrigued that you called yourself a wellness coach. Can you tell me how you came to do that? And she said, oh, well, I went to the school where I got trained and certified as a wellness coach. Really? Tell me more about that. And I ended up enrolling in the same program she did, uh, which is the program you and I went through, which is through Well Coaches. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I both went through Well Coaches and uh, simultaneously got trained as a personal trainer through the American College of Sports Medicine Mm -hmm. because my... My background is actually in the high-tech industry. Um, I My bachelor's is in computer science. My master's is in education. And so I felt it was important for me to have a health credential. I, I felt that there was a certain amount of weight that came with having the life experience of MS, but I wanted to right. have, have an additional yeah. health credential. So I went through all that and finished all that training and certification by the fall of 2008 and then hung up my shingle for priority wellness in the fall of 2008. That's amazing. Yeah. So... When you say health and wellness, what does that mean to you? That's such a good question. Um, It's basically the practices and behaviors and patterns that help me be at my best and perform at my best Mm -hmm. and do what's important to me. And where you Um, have such a personal stake in that. Mm. I mean, we all do, but you have it in a way that if you don't take care of your health or your, you know, physical body, your body's going to really Oh, yeah. <laughs> strike so, out, yeah, right? Yeah, if yeah, if I got a real heightened awareness of that in in being diagnosed with MS mm-hmm. and I can remember so when I first started my practice, my my main focus was on helping people people manage stress because that was something that I spent a lot of time on and was hyper-conscious of not overextending myself Mm -hmm. and not having stress because it has has shown that if um, folks with MS or many uh, chronic illnesses or autoimmune diseases, your stress can contribute to potentially having another flare-up, and I didn't want to have another flare-up. So I was hyper-conscious of that and did all kinds of things to keep my stress in check, and that's why that piece became so important to me and what I wanted to focus on. I find the science around a lot of these autoimmune and or chronic kind of diseases that a lot of people manage and and deal with so much has to do with uh, inflammation in the body Mm. and then how stress contributes to that. And like, um, yeah, I've been dealing with a a, a sort of nagging uh, back issue 
started as something else in the fall and now, you know, it's um, it's just the tiniest, briefest of windows into the anxiety and agitation you get when you're dealing with something that's chronic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so much of that is mental when you can only do so much physically. Like, you know, I had like real physical limitations caused by pain. And so there were things that doctors and others were, you know, suggesting to manage it. And then obviously I was trying to manage it on my own for a while. But that idea that um, sometimes we don't always act in our own best interests. Oh, yeah. So how do you, how did you, how did you like have that kind of conversation with yourself knowing that we don't always act in our own own best interests? I just, for me, I think in many ways that diagnosis was a wake up call for me. And I can remember, and I, and I say this in the introduction of my book, I walked into my, I, I got diagnosed December, walked into my primary care physician's office in January and said, okay, I have this diagnosis. It's my intention to live a fully active, healthy life. What should I be doing? Mm -hmm. And so I never, I I almost didn't give myself time to kind of dwell on that. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. let's get my butt in gear and figure out what I should be doing. And she lined me up with a whole bunch of tests. And that year was like the year of the lab rat and learned a bunch of things. Like I'm not good with gluten. I don't have celiac disease, but I'm non-celiac gluten sensitive. So I basically can't eat gluten. It makes me sick. Mm -hmm. So been off gluten militantly since 2006. And um, my doctor's office had a uh, Qigong class, which is a a standing form of Chinese meditation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Learned that as another way of managing my stress and went on one of the uh, disease modifying drugs. And uh, so and with the gluten sensitivity, you know, changed how I ate and exercise, you know, f- built in ways to exercise. And that year, looking back, I needed a nap every day just to function mm-hmm. and just honoring that like this is what my body needs. So I really started to uh, deeply pay attention to what my body need, how I needed to be fueled mm-hmm. to to be at my best mm-hmm. and. And I'm like, everyone else needs this. People need way, People need to figure out what works right for them. So you know, right. I figured out what works right for me. And what I do isn't necessarily what everybody else needs right. to do. Yep. Yep. And yep. that's what's fun about my job is helping pe- people figure out that, that mix of things. And also to your, to your original question, working with what you can do if you have limitations. Yep. Okay, well, we won't work on that area right now. So what can you do? Yep. Yep. What yep. is yep. possible? And not only what you can do, but ways of being, mindset stuff, yes, um, which is huge, and and helping people with that. So no matter how you might be limited physically, there might be other things to work on right. mentally, emotionally. Yeah. So even though my winter and spring and so far summer has been good, but um, we're really tough and very challenging emotionally. They were, I was very successful professionally Mm. and had a lot of like, so I was very stimulated. I was having such great momentum. I had awesome writing going on. I did, you know, some storytelling events, um, but I was like dragging around basically a leg that on a good day was like, you know, if you want to do a pain scale was like a six. Mm. So, and you find a way to 
deal with that, but it goes somewhere. For me, at least, psychically, it goes somewhere. Oh, it does. I think we try to, especially women, we try to compartmentalize Mm -hmm. and say, okay, I'm rocking it professionally. Mm -hmm. And I've got this, to use your example, this physical ailment. So I'll, you know, do what I need to do on that, but I really need to just keep push, push, pushing. And what I advocate is, we'll honor that, let's not ignore that you have that, whatever, you know, physical ailment or whatever it is, do what you need to do to tend to that. Right. Because if you try to submerge it or, you know, think of like the analogy of like a beach ball. If you try to submerge a beach ball underwater, what happens? Sooner or later, you can't keep it under and then it explodes when yes. you let it go. And it's the same thing yes. with that. We're human beings. We're not robots. Right. So much, keep, as you, m- much as you try to like compartmentalize and maybe shove something, it is going to trickle into the other thing. So, and, and it's a matter of setting priorities and mm-hmm. you know and I know that's easier said than done but it's it's choosing on what do I, what do I need to focus on now yes. and now might be today now right. might be this next hour right. like what do I need to focus on now what matters most for what it is I'm trying to how I'm trying to do and be right and um one of the things I found that I was just really angry <laughs> Who am I angry at? I'm angry at myself. (laughs) Yeah. Well, how did you answer that question? Yeah, I didn't necessarily. I just said, who am I angry at? And so what I would say to my my primary care or whoever I was going to see at the time, um, at least I've used up my deductible on my health plan at this (laughs) point. So our visit is free, right? Or I'd say to my fiance, like, if I got a peg leg, would you still love me? Like, if we had to cut the leg off, would you still love me? And he goes, would you have a parrot? Like, if you had a parrot, maybe we could (laughs) work up an axe or something. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely gotten better. But I just had that, I really had that tiniest, briefest of windows where I... I realized what it is to have some sort of chronic illness, what Mm. that feels like, and how when you have a good day, you want to go out and, like, do everything. Right. And And when you're not having a good day, you just – you're – you're like thankful that you know you were able to get up and have coffee and some toast and like read a few emails and then you needed yeah. a nap again so yeah what looks like a win today might be look like a different right, win tomorrow right, right. and it's just and it's being okay with that especially in a society which is so which celebrates like let's be productive let's keep being productive and it's like right. well no let's let's exist and engage in what matters to us right and rather than worrying about the little piddly stuff, like what really matters. And how do you manage that expectation for yourself? Because you seem like you're a doer and a you mm. know a, you know high achiever, and you've worked in careers and fields that have been very demanding. And you're obviously self-published. You just laid out your whole um, schedule for that book, which as I, as you were reading, as you were going through it, I was like, oh my god, I'm exhausted. <laughs> but yeah. I could hear the energy behind it so like tell me how you manage that for yourself well you know and it's I'm my own lab I like continue to figure out what works for me and 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 that's how what I advocate for people so you know I've played with different ways to meditate for example and um, and there's certain things that are consistent in my life. Like I said earlier, I've kept a journal since I was 15. Does that mean I journal every single day? No, but I do journal most days. I probably journal like 90% of the time. And how does that help you? 
oh my God, I'm a bear if I don't journal. What does like it, it do really, for you? Is it, it like really a brain dump? Me. or Yeah, it does a couple things. It's mostly a brain dump. It dumps out. I do it in the morning mm-hmm. and it dumps out. It, I don't worry about if it looks pretty or mm-hmm. anything. Yep. It's just getting whatever stuff out of my head. So it keeps you from perseverating around a thought or something. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes I use it for problem solving if I'm stuck on yeah. something or if yep. something kept me up all night or whatever. Or if I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't get something out, I just, I would, I'll journal mm-hmm. So it's like the thing that's kind of always there for me yeah. to fall back on. And and if there's nothing like crisis or, you know, it's just a normal day, it just helps to set set me mentally for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find on the days that I don't journal or on the days that I don't meditate, I'm much more scattered. Um, okay. So when I, when I do journal and meditate, it's, you know, and I, it's not spending hours. I might journal for like five to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. I might meditate for five to 15 minutes. You know, some days it might feel like an, okay, I need an hour, you know, for either today. So I just kind of like check in and say, all right, what do I need? Um, Yeah. And I I think perhaps pouring some of the physical pain I was feeling into the writing I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, Do you ever read something you've written and been like, whoa, I wrote that? Like, is it ever unrecognizable? Like that you're like, you don't. It comes from someplace a little more magic for you. Do you ever read that stuff and be like, "You talk reading my journal or reading anything, parts of my book, anything or, that you've written." Sometimes, um, yeah. I don't often. It's funny. I don't often go back and read my journal. Um, it's true because it's truly a brain dump. There's been sometimes I do if I like struggle with a particular thing or this is popping up again. I might go back, but I won't go back like years. It would, mm-hmm. you know, go back like a few weeks or a month or so. Um, but, and then in reading my own writing and say, oh, you, you know, like you said, oh, that's, that sounds pretty good or it's whatever. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, there's been times when that happens. I, I don't know how often that is, you mm-hmm. know, from either one of my new, you know, past newsletter issues or, you know, when the book ultimately mm-hmm. came out and proofing it yet again. Um, yeah, there's been moments where I'm like, oh, you know, that's worded pretty good um but yeah it's i wouldn't say it happens a lot i it's hard to it's hard to be your own you know create that distance with your own stuff i think it's much and that's why i'm eager for this to be out there because i just want to see how this lands for people yeah i'm really i want to i did it to continue i want to continue the conversation um and it's it's not trying to be the be all end all. It's 166 pages. I'm not trying to be the be all end all about burnout. Mm-hmm. It's it's giving something people something to start with. It's a tool and to start the conversation. I can't possibly coach every single person who could use this information. Yeah, and it's a way to extend that reach. And that's so, awesome. Yeah, I know one of the conversations I had with you a long time ago. It may have been when we first met. Uh, we talked a little bit about cooking. Mm. So. Did that food. was that? So, I love talking about food. Yeah, me too. Um, was that something that came out of uh, needing to be gluten free, or is that something you always had? Oh no, I've always been a big food fan. In fact, I think I have a thing on my website that says, "If I wasn't a health coach, I would probably be a food critic because I just love food. I love checking out different restaurants, doing day trips, and visiting different places and trying different food." And have you been somewhere recently that you found interesting or surprising? Yes, in um, Angelo's in Stoneham does this wine dinner 
periodically that I learned about, and I coincidentally learned about it the week of our wedding anniversary, and we went. It was amazing. It was five courses in there. They have this little teeny tiny wine cellar in their basement. It you, It's not fancy. They have these a couple long tables end to end, and there's wine stored around you, prosciutto hanging from the ceiling. It was the coolest thing, and it was five courses. You start with a champagne course, and then it's five uh, four other red wines, and then food at the the remaining four courses, $95 a person. It was awesome. I would totally do it again. They allow like 20, 22 people. The night that we went, a party of 10 canceled, so there was only like 10 or 12 of us, and we had a blast. That sounds wonderful. It was great. Was it? So it was like it's both expo- exploration and learning as well as like taste and sensation for you? Is that? What- I just love the whole experience. I love the whole experience of – the taste, I appreciate well-prepared and well-presented food. Mm-hmm. I appreciate good service mm-hmm. um, and uh, especially love to support a, a local chef or a local yeah. restaurant yep. owner and yep. like that whole thing. Um, my my brother's a professional chef. My husband used to be a professional chef. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I've been close to people mm-hmm. in the business. Uh, so, and I, yeah, and I just. Do you have a certain type food. of food that you like to cook oh, or? Oh, I'm not the cook in the house. My husband is. So, um, yeah, um, I need a recipe. And my husband has this amazing ability to take whatever's in the fridge and the cabinets and whip it all together and make it taste good. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's all kinds of food I love. Um, All Seasons Table right up the street. Love their sushi. I love Um, their sushi, too. Yeah, it's a great place to go. Have you been to Crying Tiger? No, tell me about Crying Tiger. So that's our new discovery. They actually have a lovely wine list. It's uh, Thai food, but mm-hmm. they do a lot of street food. Oh, and, cool. And um, uh, it's not a white burgundy. It's something like, I don't know, but it's another uh, kind of a French white wine that they have that pairs nicely with a lot of the, so you can get pad thai. They have noodles. They have a lot of curry dishes. Cool. Um, really great little restaurant. Um, Where are they? They are um, on Ferry Street. Okay. Um, fantastic. And it's spelt strangely. So crying is um, C-R-A-I-N-D-Y. Okay. And tiger is T-H, like tiger. Got it. Oh, got it. Um, yeah. Cool. Add it to the list. Very good. Very, very good. Um, and the thing that I love when you go into an Asian restaurant, especially in the Malden area, and you see more than half the restaurant patrons are Asian, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then good you spot. know it's good. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, I'm the type of cook that I um, I like to experiment. So recipes are like my downfall. So mm-hmm. I'm a terrible baker because I'm like, oh, I'll do a little of this, a little of that. Friend sent me a gluten-free bread. It's more like a loaf recipe. And I was like, could you put molasses in it? And she's like, no, that's not what the recipe calls for. Could you put sunflower seeds in it? She's <laughs> like, no, that's not what the recipe She goes, well, I guess you could. You could experiment and see what happens. <laughs> yes, that's the kind of thing like I like. I like cooking as experimentation. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably not at the level of what your husband is capable of. But yes, I like to look in the refrigerator and like, and sometimes my fiance will be like, what did you put in this again? <laughs> and I'll be like, is it good? Because you don't have to ask the question right. if it's good. Right. Yeah. But you appreciate the well-prepared 
Yeah, um, and this, this doesn't mean like a gourmet meal. Yes. You know, you can have a really good salad. Right. Um, you know, you, with unique dressing and, and, and mixture of ingredients or a right. really unique omelet. You know, it doesn't have to be. When you, you – know. um, is um, is food part of the practice for you when you're talking to clients? Or? It can be. It, and again, it depends on what they need. If someone's got the food part nailed, great. Um, then we don't need to discuss that. Mm-hmm. Or if they're coming to me for – Whatever something they um, there are a group of folks that I help. One area of my practice is also helping people with weight loss. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so obviously that would be part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. And food isn't the only factor in weight loss. It's right. food, it's movement, yep. it's stress and sleep, and all those pieces yep. Yep. are in that. So yeah, it depends on what people need. It's not. It's not prescriptive in terms of like, okay, I have my five ways of doing something. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, we'll figure out what it is you need and then we'll figure out mm-hmm. how to best approach it to work for you. And and there's different aspects of food too. It's it's not only how the meals are composed, but then how do you do it if you are on the road a lot or travel a lot or tend to be in the car or have, you know, a, a culture where people go out to eat a lot at at lunch and how do you mm-hmm. navigate that or or if you're not a good cook or whatever. So it's mm-hmm. it's how do you even get to the place of having good food, um, you know, nutrient-dense food mm-hmm. to eat on a regular basis. Um, I have had a conversation with a bunch of different coaches that I've interviewed and we've talked a lot about how the uh, coaching industry is unregulated. Mm. I mean, it's moving towards mm-hmm. more certifications. I know that you have one of the national certifications. Which one is that again? I have the national – it's um, it's the credential is National Board Certified Health and Wellness Coach um, put, on by the, put out by the National Board of Health and Wellness Coaches. Mm-hmm. And I was part – that came out in 2017 and I was part of the first group that got that certification. Mm-hmm. So it's the same, and it was the board that creates it is the same board that creates boards for doctors and nurses. Mm-hmm. So, I think one of the things we were talking about is, um, I don't always call myself a coach. Mm. It depends on the circles, and um, that for me is not my only identity. So I'm comfortable moving in and out of that. But I, I find it difficult sometimes because you could line seven of us up mm-hmm. who all call ourselves coaches and we have a variety of backgrounds and trainings and some are not certified. And yeah. um, I, I, I like my chiropractor. I just recently started seeing someone, new chiropractor, and she told me that she calls herself a health and wellness coach. And that I just sort of felt deflated in that because Mm. anyone can kind of hold out a shingle. Do you have a sense or maybe I'm asking your opinion or perspective on how you see the industry changing and what do you see? What kind of questions do you get out there from folks? And like, do you have how do you represent yourself? So a couple. Let me answer that a few different ways. Sure. Typically in a networking event, I get away f- – I've gone away from when someone asks the what do you do question. Mm-hmm. The f- first word out of my mouth is not that I'm a health coach because because of what exactly what you yeah. just said is yeah. that there's so many different combinations and permutations of that. So I'll typically say something like I'm a burnout buster. I help – I specialize in helping women avoid burnout mm-hmm. and, and go from there um, because I do feel like the, the word coach has gotten diluted. 
yeah, a lot. Yeah. And for a bunch of different reasons, like you just brought up that example there. Um, and then there are folks who work in the d- direct sales place where they might yes. represent a particular product, whether supplement, it's a, a yeah. shake or a supplement or what have you. And they they are they call themselves certified health and wellness coaches. And it's not untrue. Their company has created a certification program for their product. Right. But it's a different kind of certification than what what I have. Right. And so there's there's education with that and there's and there's also understanding, you know, for people who want something in a box, that's that's the fit for them. Those aren't my peeps. Right. You know, my, my peeps are the people who are looking to make uh, behavior and pattern changes in what it is they're doing. I don't align myself with any particular product. I was just going to say, how often are you approached for that? Not often lately, but in the beginning stages of my practice, a lot, a lot. Um, It happens maybe once a year now, but but it happened a lot more in the earlier stages of my practice. And, you know, and, and similar to like, so I, besides doing coaching, whether it's one-on-one or, or a group, I also speak a lot in different mm-hmm. settings. I, I So speak you in, like to wear the educator hat because that's part of your background. Yeah. So I, uh, I speak at different, uh, in companies, I speak at different uh, professional organizations, I speak at conferences. So that's another another way that kind of sets me apart a little bit. And then, yeah, and then there's there's so many different – health and wellness is a big umbrella. There's so many different ways. You asked me at the beginning how I defined it, and that's my definition. What I love about working with my clients is everyone defines what they feel health and wellness is mm-hmm. differently. And because and let's face it, in this country, there is a lot of work to do on getting people healthy. So you know what? There's a part of me that's also like the more the merrier. If if you're focused on health, great, join, come into the pool because we need a lot of people helping other people get healthy. So, you know, the more the merrier is, is right, kind of the other right. way I look at it too. I think the thing that I find a a, a little I'm put off by it, but I find it a little for me, distracting, because I think of health and wellness as a much broader idea, probably similar to what you, that was, it's so, it was so focused initially on fitness. And I think it still gets paired with that. And for me, um, because of my personal background and my weight loss journey, and my physical health uh, challenges, I, I find that a really mixed bag like mm. fitness is a really mixed bag for me and um i don't have um i don't have the goal of running a marathon i don't want to be an elite athlete mm. i want to be you know healthy right and that may look very different like i'm not going to be a personal trainer i'm right i'm i you know there's folks in our cohort from uh, well, coaches that have that background, and I love them greatly and admire mm-hmm. them, but I'm such a different type of coach yeah. than that. So, yeah. yeah, so I, how do I respond to that? I agree. I see that. So, a lot of times, again, when people hear what I do in networking settings, you know, one of the first questions is, oh, so you help people lose weight? Well, yes, I can do that, and mm-hmm. I have successfully done that. Um, but it's not the only thing that I do, right? Because health and wellness is so big, and and yeah, it's really 
and a lot of times I will say to people, I kind of, I, I look through everything through the lens of energy, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Mm-hmm. And how are you using those pieces mm-hmm. to give yourself the fuel that you need to perform at your best? So, so that's my slant on the world and how I look at it. And so when, if you look at it from that big picture perspective, mm-hmm. it's obvious that Okay, fitness could be a piece of that, but fitness might not mm-hmm. be a piece of that. What what is being fit look like? Mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of times people, you know, assume that I'm going to tell them to go to the gym. Well, do you like to go to the gym? Right. I'm only going to have you go right. to the gym if that's something you like to do. There's a lot of other ways you can move right, that right, have right. zero to do with go- joining the gym. Yeah. So so yeah, it's I think it's um, it's not only clarifying the scope of what I focus on, but also helping people clarify for themselves right. for what, because a lot of times people don't even stop and think and consider, do what would I consider myself? Am I, am I, do I have a sense of well-being and right. how I'm existing right now? Right. Yeah. And a lot of times it's not until they sit down and, and make press pause and make the space to work with me or, or any or any health coach yeah, yeah. and where they're making the time of gee what does that look like right. and maybe maybe what it looked like in your 20s might look a lot different than what it looks like in your 40s right um and that's i spend a lot of time with people on that because my my sweet spot is professional women in their 40s to 60s and yeah we spend a lot of time looking at you know gee i used to really love doing whatever zumba when i was 20 well do you still love that not really well then don't do it <laughs> It's so tough. Oh, it's almost like a light bulb going off. Oh, like there's so many other possibilities. Yeah. You know, what might be, you know, so I've had people, oh, I think I'm going to try belly dancing. Fabulous. You know, like it's just figuring out what's, oh, there's a hula hoop class. Terrific. Right. Or if you want to do group stuff. Geez, I haven't played softball in years. I'd really love to look into a league. Excellent. You know, whatever. Or it doesn't have to be an exercise thing. It could be a food thing. Mm -hmm. It could be just something that plain old brings you joy. Right. A lot of people don't know what makes them happy now because they're spending a lot of time being miserable. Right. And it's it's And happiness is a loaded word. They think yeah. that it should be some sort of absolute. Right. And and twenty four hours a day, you know, and they're like dancing, you know, dancing on rainbows and there's unicorns all over the place. And right. no, it <laughs> Or that we can no. hold we can hold simultaneously um different notions like we could be happy and sad at the same time or we can be Mm -hmm. happy and frustrated or frustrated and sad or like it's an infinite combination of things and we don't have to be that just one thing and also by saying that we are that thing it doesn't make it written in stone it doesn't mean that we as you said can't pass have it pass through us and acknowledge it you could just like think about it and and happiness versus joy um one of the books i'm reading right now it's um the Book of Joy by um, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, and it's and it's really interesting in the way it's presenting different ways to look mm-hmm. at c- ways to create joy mm-hmm. in your life, and really, like, isn't that the reason why we're here? Is to yeah. experience joy, and isn't one of that what's what's important. One of the books that I'm reading now, which I've had to read in stages because it's just devastating. It's so amazing. It's Hunger by Roxane Gay. I heard you mention that in your last podcast. And oh. I think you. I, th- I think I saw you post it on your social media page, too. I have not picked it up yet, but I will. It sounds... It's you've, you've deeply, deeply moving. Yeah. She's a, an amazing writer anyways, but it's just very 
very devastating too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know her challenges and <clears throat> being a larger size woman. I mean she's I think she's six two, and at the beginning of the book, she's somewhere near six hundred pounds, and just going through you know that uh, reasons why and uh, what her what that weight meant mm. and purposefully, you know, very purposefully, mm. but very insightful. Um, really beautifully written though. I have to add it to the list. No, you I'm, should. A hu- I'm a huge reader. So yeah, I'll, I'll put it on the, the list. The one that uh, I just listened to, I'm a podcast person. I listen to other people's podcasts. Um, and you ever listen to Mark Marin? I have not. He's a comic and he you wouldn't think it's a sort of surprisingly amazing interviewer. So he has these very deep conversations with people and he just had a conversation with Eve Ensler. Okay. From the Vagina Monologues. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a book called The Apology, which I'm gonna add to my list because it's a book that she wrote from the perspective of her dead father who molested her and it's aptly titled an apology so she went through and did this meditation Hmm. and this process where she sort of exercised her own demons around the shame and the internalization and the trauma and then put herself in her father's shoes and had him write the letter wow and as they were talking about it at one point she you know she's talks about the environment and the culture of you know that uh, culture that supports violence against women and a government that supports violence against women and prison systems and she just was going on about everything and the different groups and works places that she works to combat that and she and Mark Marin were like they just stopped and you could tell both of them were crying mm. but neither one apologized for Why crying would you? Why would you? Well, that's, that's showing emotion. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I loved that they got emotional, they let it be, and then he just sort of said something reflective about what it was that they were talking about, and then she sort of chimed back in. But there's something beautiful about that, and that's something that we're not seeing a lot lately is being being okay with being genuine with right. this is what this is how this touches me. This is how right. I'm experiencing that. And yeah, we need to. It's so tough because that. authenticity is now a buzzword. Right. But it's, you know it when you see it. Mm. And sometimes it's hard to define. Mm. But it's, um, that's the part I think that people crave. And we see that so much in coaching mm. is that the part that makes you unique and special and that clients really probably are craving from you is the part that's authentic. Mm. It's great if you have awesome tools. We love that. But like that's that's the part they can't teach. Right. And it's also really cool to bring people to a place where they're being authentic with themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. And then just acknowledging like, okay, this is what's real for me now. Can you think of a time where that happened with a client that you don't have to say anybody's names, but um, yeah, it happens in different ways. Um, I, I will say to people listening, if you think you're alone in your struggle, I assure you, you are not. There yeah. are other people out there who are dealing with whatever struggle you might have in attaining whatever level of health and wellness you have. Yeah, and and it starts with um, being. Uh, where you're starting at doesn't 
dictate your endpoint. It just it's just where you're currently at right yeah. now. And if if where you're at isn't a place where doesn't reflect where you want to be, then all you need is the desire to want something different mm. and and being willing to experiment and make changes and know that that's a process. It's not like you snap your fingers and, and get a different way of being tomorrow. I had that's a process. Um, I had a client that was fairly long term and she would come go away and come back and go away and come back. And the way that I would recognize when I was hearing her authentic self excuse me, was her voice would change. Mm. So there was like kind of language and a script that she would use when she was talking about her life and what she did and how she did it. And I was like kind of what you're saying, like very rote. And then she would get animated about something. Mm. And it was usually something that she was getting mad about. Um, And her voice would change. And she would be so clear and so definitive and so... And um, she was definitely one client. I don't t- typically record my um, sessions with clients, but she was one that I really wished I had had that routine of mm. recording because I wanted her to listen back to her session and hear herself yeah. be different. And I think, you know, I, I would reflect back to her, like what I'm hearing now you say yeah. is really the core that yes. is the authentic, that's your authenticity. That's who you are. That's how you're feeling, but that's also who you are. Like that strength, that clarity of purpose, that right. like really knowing yourself. You're so, you're so right. And um, I, I don't record my sessions either. I do my coaching over the phone. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I need to really pay attention. And I'm glad you brought up the whole voice thing. Yeah. So I, I've had similar experiences. It's a cue, where you hear, yeah. you hear like, the, almost the frequency go up or the pace go up yeah. and the intensity behind it. Yes. And so it's it's both how they how they are speaking and it's also choices in their making in terms of really taking a stand for themselves yeah. in whatever situation where before um they might have let something go and then they realize like, well no, you know what, that um that's not okay. Right. What happened. And this is this is this is the um criteria that I'm going to set or this is this is the new boundary that I'm going to create and and when they come to that for themselves Mm -hmm. that's huge and uh, so I get really rewarded out of seeing that seeing them kind of claim that for themselves did you ever have a um, time when you wanted to coach in person or that you coached in person I have had occasions when I do that sometimes mm-hmm. um, where some of my clients are local and uh, and sometimes we move in the same circles. So there's been some cases where we've been at the same meeting and it's like, oh, do you mm-hmm. want to just have our next session after that or before yeah. that? And so, yeah, um, but I, I love the coaching over the phone. It's just so convenient for both of us. No one's mm-hmm. like rushing to get a parking spot or mm-hmm. trying to find some place in traffic. It can happen wherever mm-hmm. and it forces me to really tune into mm-hmm. their tone, their pace, what's being said, what's not being said, and I don't, I'm not distracted by mm-hmm. body language or what, what have you. Yeah. Um, so, did yeah. was there ever a time that that um, because you are well, you seem to me to be outgoing and mm. people person, that that was hard for you to. Sort of assume. I don't recall it being hard because that's how we were trained at Well Coaches. It was okay. all over the phone, so okay. it was how I was trained. It was what I was used to, mm-hmm. and even before going through Well Coaches, <coughs> excuse me, 
I received coaching from other people way before well coaches. And that was all over the phone too. And that okay. was probably a function of the times. We didn't have Zoom or um, Skype yeah. or anything like yeah. that back then. So it was the only way. Um, but yeah, no, I really like it. I like the convenience. I love coaching over the phone. Yeah, me too. I, I um, I think that's one of the reasons that I love podcasting. But I, I feel like, I feel like people that are willing to perhaps be a little more vulnerable over the phone, where they may or may not do that in person. Mm. Um, and I didn't know that I was going to be able to adopt that initially mm. when I was going through training because. I do love all of the visual cues that you get in people's body language and um, your body language and being able to look someone in the eye, that kind of thing. But I found phone <coughs> phone conversations, um, that, yeah, really helpful, mm. really helpful and really informative. And um, I like... Uh, being a, a detective of mm. sorts and having, as you said, having to be present and not be distracted and really tuning in. Right. Yeah. It's no, I just, would I ever not do that? Yeah, perhaps. Like there mm-hmm. might be a, a time where I, the, now there's more coaching tools available that have like built in yeah. uh, secure ways to video conference people. Yeah. And so always stay open. And for, but for right now, the phone's working. Yeah. So um, how can people um, purchase your book? Thank you for asking that. <laughs> uh, so the, probably the easiest way is to go to my website, which is prioritywellness.com, and the link directly to my book on the site, it's prioritywellness.com slash ignition book. Okay. Um, and if you forget that, if you just go to prioritywellness.com, there's an ignition book tab that you just click on the top. And do you have any speaking events or book events coming up that people can check I out? I do. I have a uh, – I'm at my first Barnes & Noble this Saturday, uh, which is the June 29th at the Barnes & Noble in Salem, New Hampshire, from noon to 3. Uh, then I'll be at the Barnes & Noble in Peabody Saturday, July 13th. And – I am at the Barnes & Noble in Burlington on Saturday, August 10th, and the times are escaping me at the moment, but they're all posted on my website. That's great. Um, and you're so, there answering questions and signing yeah, books? Yeah, these and- are – the ones at Barnes & Noble are uh, – it's a one-on-one type format, so they're going to have me set up near the entrance to the store, me and my table of books, and yeah, to have one-on-one conversations with people about the nice. book. And, yeah, and if they'd like a copy, I'll sign it. And How do you just... usually find clients? How do people usually come to you? Networking, speaking, and referral are my biggest ways of getting clients. And whether that's referral from other clients or other practitioners in the health and wellness space, mm-hmm. um, or even other coaches, if it's not uh, if it's a life coach or a mm-hmm. career coach, and who doesn't do what I do, mm-hmm. um, then yeah. Do you coach other coaches? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, it depends if they have a health and wellness challenge, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I took my first client as a has another coaching discipline, and we spoke very openly because in my own head I had sort of a rule that I was going to coach other coaches because <laughs> I had found, um, and this may have been my mm. own block, but that I really enjoyed being client 
but not all coaches enjo- enjoy that client process. Mm. Um, and that I, I found sometimes even practice coaching with people that they didn't want to let that guard down. They liked hmm. being the coach, not the client. Yeah, I love I'm, being a client. I love. I do too. Being I mean, there I for me. If I'm not getting coached myself, at least once a year, then it's time for me to get coached. Like I just think it's just really helpful. I always to, learn things because yeah, I learn. You need to. You need a mirror. You need to see. You need absolutely. another um, objective set of eyes, seeing what's going on. So Have whether you, it's you know a lot of times for me, I'm, I'm getting coached on something business related mm-hmm. and. It, it and it doesn't matter. Um, I remember way back when I first started coaching, um, a quote that was shared with me. I think it was from the who was the president of Coach U at the time. Said um, after three sessions of coaching, no matter what coaching it is that you start with, after three sessions, it's all life coaching. And it's so true because you get into true. you know a relationship with people and other stuff comes up and. Whatever. So yeah, no, I just think it's really valuable. What has been one of the big, um, biggest learning lessons, learning life lessons, personal lesson, whatever have you, business lesson that you've gotten from your coaching practice? Oh boy, I think it's the constant reminder that I don't need to have all the answers. The answers are always within the people that I'm coaching, mm. and and I make that clear to them too. It's like I'm not coming to you with the expert hat. Yes, I know certain patterns and things that tend to work mm-hmm. well for others, but you're always in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. You get to decide what you're, you're in- implementing. We're collaborating together, but yeah. And um, and being able to be present with people, it's kind of, I kind of feel like we're coming full circle on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to be present with people is both a gift and a strength because I think so many people don't feel listened to mm-hmm. and don't feel accepted for how they are now. And yeah. it's not about like fixing someone who's broken. It's about – and it's not about people being broken at all. It's about listening and understanding what they want to create for themselves and helping them – collaborating with them to create yeah. that. Yeah. And, yeah. That's lovely. That's a lovely you. way to put it. Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts? This was a lot of fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. I love it when people say that. Sometimes sometimes people look, I mean, you didn't look this way, but some people will look a little nervous even though they know me and this yeah, is yeah, just yeah. a conversation really. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes they want to have all of their information nailed down and it's sort of like – it's storytelling. It's yeah. like you know your story. You yeah. know generally what you want to say. There's always things after the fact that you may think of, and we can always try to put up on the website or you know give information after the fact. But right. it's it's uh, it's such a fun process for me because I always learn something, and I'm happy if the person says, "Hey, this was fun." <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you. This was um, my guest, Chris. Say your last name. Vasiliadis. Vasiliadis. And uh, this is High Felicia Podcast, and I am your host, Felicia Ryan. And at the end of our show, we say, Bye, Felicia. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> yep. Yeah.